0: Listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. I don't know that there's much left to say after that. I think the whole lesson has been taught. Uh, But for those of you perhaps who don't know, today is Trinity Sunday, and in the church calendar, it doesn't actually have an ancient history. Trinity Sunday wasn't part of the ancient church, but more recently, we've kind of added it in because we believe in the Trinity, but we don't always teach on it, and they thought they needed a particular day. I'm not sure who they is in that sentence. They thought we needed a particular day. It's the indefinite plural. Somebody thought we needed a particular day to focus on the Trinity, and this is that day. So this is pretty confusing. I mean, we all know math, one plus one plus one equals one. Yeah, so be careful, because spiritual math doesn't add up. So what can we say? We can say this, that God is love. God is not like love. God is not similar to love. God is not uh, loving, simply loving. God is love. 1 John, uh, uh, John 4, 7 and 8 says this. It says, Beloved, let us one love one another because, God, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Like that's, that's the best description that we have of who God is is that God is love. Now we can talk about God having other attributes, and we can talk about God doing other things, but if it doesn't kind of line up with that basic statement that God is love, then our description probably needs some kind of refinement. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the names of God, and we, we find this from the Old Testament. There's the Our understanding of who God is, that is, the revelation that has come to us, particularly through the Scriptures, has been progressive. That is, we've learned more about who God is as time has come on, has has kind of rolled on, because God has told us more things. So it is Father's Day on the American calendar, so you'll indulge me just a bit. But there's there's this little boy, came home from Sunday school, and told his mom, hey, I'd like to write a letter to God. And she said, okay. And so he starts writing, dear Howard. <laughs> and then as he goes to start the next part, his mom's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did you address the letter, dear Howard? And she said, or he said, because that's, that's God's name. Well, where, where did you learn that? Well, I learned that in Sunday school. What exactly did they say? They said, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. Thank you. All right, one more. Little girl comes home from Sunday school and uh, she wants to write a letter to God. And this, this is, this is going to connect maybe with just the older crowd here. Um, she wants to write a letter to God and she addresses it, dear Andy. And of course, the mom says, who told you that God's name was Andy? She said, we sang, we sang about Andy in, in Sunday school. Well, exactly what did you sing? Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. I got a million of these. I know, you're scared, save them. <laughs> save them for next year. So one of the oldest names for God in Hebrew is the term Elohim. That's always been a little confusing to us Protestants because Elohim is plural. It means gods. Well, why in the world would our scriptures refer to God as gods? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't just believe in one God. And I'm not just talking about uh, pagans in the ancient world. I'm talking about ancient Israelites that they, they too had this idea of a belief in multiple gods. Um, they lived in a polytheistic world. There was a pantheon of gods. Gods were kind of regionally located. We, we, we read about them. There's the god of the Egyptians and the god of the Babylonians and the god of the Canaanites. And then we have the god of the Israelites, right? So their understanding of who God was was very tribal, So if Elohim doesn't refer to multiple gods, at the very least, we'll take a really conservative evangelical reading of this, we'll say it refers to God and the heavenly hosts. But I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think Elohim was this idea of lots and lots of gods. Um, Eventually, we get to Moses, and Moses has his burning bush experience, and we get a new name for God. Uh, not Howard and not Andy. In fact, we're not exactly sure how to pronounce it because it's four letters in Hebrew. It's the Yod, the He, the Vav, and the He. And we typically pronounce it Yahweh. I mean, how many of you have heard that that was the name of God before? Yeah, you've heard that name, Yahweh. But then sometimes we say that the name of God in the Old Testament was Jehovah. How many of you heard that before? Jehovah. Well, Jehovah is just another way to pronounce those same four letters that we pronounce Yahweh, which seems kind of pretty far apart. I mean, Yahweh doesn't seem that close to Jehovah. But what happened is they took those Hebrew letters and they transliterated them into the German language, which ended up with a uh, JV or J-H-V-H. And you see how close that is to Jehovah, right? And so you have to transliterate them from Hebrew into German and then pronounce it in English in order to get Jehovah. And if you laughed a little bit, I appreciate that because that sounds silly. Like, who's going to do that, right? That's, that's really, we're really kind of stretching the possibilities out. I mean, I grew up being taught that God had lots of different names. And it was these things like uh, Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Rapha. And that was just this word for Yahweh, followed by some verb in the Old Testament. So, for example, Yahweh, Yare, or if you prefer, Jehovah Jireh, because that's how we sang it. And we also kicked a little bit when we sang it. I tell you, you really would have loved my childhood. Um, that's really just a statement. Like Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, to, to use the German transliteration pronounced in English version, then sung in charismatic churches in the 80s, right? So that's a long progression there. But Jehovah Jireh just comes from this one story in Genesis where Abraham and Isaac are are walking up the mountain and Isaac's Isaac's looking around. He's like, well, I see the wood and dad's got a torch and I see a knife, but we didn't bring the sacrifice, Dad's losing it. And he's like, hey, dad, dad, Abraham, father of the nations. Knows, I don't know how, how he had to get his attention. And Abraham's like, yeah, what do you need? Isaac, and he goes, dad, I think we forgot the sacrifice. And the text says that Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh will see. God will see to it. It's, it's like in a future tense. God will see to it. Like, it's a very similar analogy that we use. Like, if you said, if you asked me to do something for you, and I said, I'll see to it, that means either I'll do it or I'll make sure it's done. I'll provide. And so that's how we ended up with this idea that God is a provider because Abraham said to Isaac, basically, that God will provide. But God will provide is not God's name. It's just something that God does. God is a provider. And so to call that a name is a bit of a stretch because names names are personal. Names have to do with our identity. Names are not just titles. They're not reducible to just something that we do. So let's think, let's think of this, uh, another way to express this perhaps is in the first commandment. All right, the 10 commandments. Commandment number one, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we might hear that in our 21st century Christian ears and think, well, that means that there's only one God, but listen carefully. You'll have no other gods before me. It almost presupposes that you believe that there are other gods that you're not going to place those gods before Yahweh because that's exactly what they did believe. They believed that um, there were the gods of the Egyptians, again, and the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Canaanites, and that this was their God, and they were being told, don't worship the other gods. Worship just the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's, how God started to be revealed to people. So God is revealed in the Old Testament as this creator, Yahweh, the one who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the New Testament, we never get that name. In the New Testament, God is not revealed to us as Yahweh, or at least they don't use the term. Instead, they use the analogy Of Father, Son, and Spirit. So, Father, Son, and Spirit in the New Testament equals Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yahweh is not the Father of Jesus. The Old Testament's use of Yahweh is identical to the New Testament's use of Father, Son, and Spirit, and eventually the same as the early church's reference to the Trinity. They're all referring to the same God which we now understand to be the one and only God, like there actually aren't other gods. We've moved away from a technical term would be henotheism, the worship of one God in the midst of many, to monotheism, the belief and practice that there is only one God and that's the one God that we worship. We open the service with this passage from Romans 5. I'd like for us to revisit it. And it, this is, this, you'll start to see how the New Testament speaks a little different than the old here. It says this, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so you see that with Paul, he's moved past kind of Abraham and Moses And he's embraced a new revelation that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So when we talk about Father's Day, one of my girls asked me last night, Hey, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? Dads? And I said, No, I'm preaching on the Trinity. And they said, Well, there's a dad in there somewhere. (laughs) That's good theology. The Father has always been the Father because the Son has always been the Son. There was never a time when the Father was not the Father, and there was never a time when the Son was not the Son. And the Spirit has always been the Spirit. They've always been one. So we can say this about Jesus that Jesus is the truest and the fullest revelation of God. Like there's nothing there's nothing we've ever had or ever will have, I believe that would be a a truer and fuller revelation of who God is than Jesus. And so we can't talk about the Father in ways that are incongruent with how we talk about Jesus. This is really important because sometimes we talk about the Father in ways that the Father sounds like he's different than Jesus, that they, they have different agendas or they have different characters, like if, if we describe God in such a way that Jesus is our elder brother who has to protect us from the Father, then, then that's, a, that's bad theology. Two, two little Celtic guys with red hair are going are gonna, to um, fuss at us and say, no, that's a heresy from the early church and that will get, get you kicked out. Jesus is, he's the word that was spoken He is the expression of God. There's nothing about Jesus. And so since we know more about Jesus, because Jesus lived here and lived here and worked here and walked and talked and ate and slept and had friends, his words and his actions, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, really show us who God is. And that's the truest and fullest revelation of that. The spirit then is not just the spirit of prophecy, which we talked about last week with Pentecost, but the spirit is also the spirit of life. The spirit that begins life, the spirit that sustains life. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 8, there's this description of wisdom that kind of personifies wisdom as this kind of ideal female. And some rabbis Suggests that that's a kind of depiction of the Spirit of God. Um, John 16 says this. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, for the Spirit will not speak his own words, but will speak whatever the Spirit hears. And the Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify me, Jesus says, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit leads us into all truth. Like there's revelation yet still to come. There's more to know of God than what we currently know. There's this um, medieval thinker, his name's Boethius, His life was really, I mean, he was well-educated, and he was well-paid, and he had a good government job, and he was a good Christian guy, and everything was going right for Boethius until there was a coup, and the government was overthrown, and Boethius was sent into exile. In exile, he wrote this beautiful book called The Consolation of Philosophy, and in it, he describes philosophy much like Proverbs 8 describes wisdom he personifies it as this kind of noble woman. And one of the first things, and she's coming to kind of nurse Boethius back to emotional and psychological health. And one of the first thing he notices about her is that she's wearing these kind of very tattered clothes. It looks like she's really kind of been through the ringers, through some hard times. And so eventually he works up the nerve to ask her, you know, thanks for coming to help me, you've done such a wonderful job, you're nursing me back to health, spiritual health, mental health, psychological health. But I've gotta ask, why are you dressed this way? And she was like, well, when Socrates died, everybody tried to grab, grab for me because they thought they could possess me, they could possess philosophy, they could possess truth. And so I had, I had to kind of writhe and twist and turn to kind of get away. And in the process, they all kind of ripped a bit of my clothes, and now they have a piece of my clothes, and they like to claim that that's the truth. So the Epicureans have this piece of my garment, and they want to say, "Yeah, look, we can't, we can't, we're not promised tomorrow, so let's eat, drink, and and marry for tomorrow we die." And the Stoics had this part of the truth, that is, your emotions can can destroy you, right? So it's better off to just push your emotions aside and just kind of live without them. So there's all these kind of bits of truth that might work for this part or that part of your life, but no one's really kind of possessing the whole. And I think sometimes that happens with our depictions of God. Like we imagine something, we imagine God to be something that can help us, that can deliver us, that can provide some source for us. And in the process, we're basically just making God a utility. God is is some tool that I can use. Or God is some, you know, grandparent that's going to swoop in and kind of save me when things go bad. This is why I think, this is part of the reason why I think the doctrine of the Trinity is so difficult for us. Is because it's completely useless. It is a useless doctrine. I said this earlier this week, and I got a little bit of pushback from the staff. But then as we talked about it more, it, it started to make sense. It's useless because there's nothing to use, it's not a utility. Like if you're going to be with someone, if you think, I'm going to, I'm going to befriend you because you have a skill set I don't have. Or because you have resources I don't have. Or, or um, you, you'll give me company and I currently don't have company. Right? So we're always trying to use the other person not as a subject in our lives, but as an object. And so it is useless. But it's not worthless. In fact, it's, it's utterly worthy. It's worth more than anything. It's, it's what life is about. This happens with our own relationships, but even more so with our relationship with God. But if we use our own relationships as an analogy, my wife and kids and family and friends aren't, aren't some utility for me to use. They're the people that I love. And getting to know them and being present with them, and being intimate, intimately close with them, is what life is really about. The Trinity is a revelation of who God is. It's not something for us to use or to lever. It's a gift of God's presence, of God's imminence. And that's, that's what we have. So this is the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. We mentioned this last week in on the day of Pentecost that knowing other people is practice for getting to know God because God is different than you. Trust me, you're not God. Yeah. And I'm not God. But we can get to know God. We can get to know God as God exists in the life-giving force of the spirit that is within other people. And the very practice of getting to know other people is practice in knowing God who is still different from us. So, part of what makes this work is time. Like any good relationship, you have to spend time with a person. You can't just think, oh, they're nice or they're intriguing or the stories they tell are compelling. You have to spend time with them. This is... I was on, on the way here to church today. They were, they were playing all of these like Father's Day songs, I guess. Uh, the first one was uh, Daughters by John Mayer. And then, yeah. And then the next one was um, Cats in the Cradle, right? That's a real heart-wrenching one. So they didn't, they didn't do Butterfly like Kisses, or at least I got to church before it came on. Um, but yeah, I mean, Cats in the Cradle, for those of you who don't know, it's a horrible song. <laughs> Or it, it, it's a lovely, no, it's not lovely. It's a heart-wrenching song about the loss of presence. So I, w- I want us to, to practice a little presence here. There's this passage in Psalms. It's Psalm 4610. It says, be still and know that I am God. Uh, I'm gonna read that several times, and we're gonna pause just a little bit between each. Um, but I want you to know, you know, we sing songs like, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I think that's a very appropriate thing to sing. It's although it's more so for us than it is for the spirit. It's to let us it's to remind us that God is always with us, that God never leaves us. So we sing Holy Spirit, you're welcome, not because like the spirit standing outside the door waiting on us to welcome the spirit in. Like you can't get away from the spirit. The spirit's always close to you. God is always with you. You might you might try and walk away from God. But that's our efforts, not God's. In fact, even when we try and walk away from God, we're not very good at that because God just follows us. (laughs) God's always where we tried to walk away from God, too. Like you try and walk away from God, wherever you get to, guess what? God's there, too. God God loves you. God loves us and God seeks after us. I'm not saying we don't have the capacity to kind of reject God. I think we do. But I think that's something that we work at. That's not something that God does. So if you would, take a deep breath. I want you to be mindfully aware that God is with us in this room. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. still B Amen look there's some practices that I think we can place into our lives that will help us um, experience and embrace the Trinity. Uh, There's a a medieval text called The Cloud of Unknowing. We don't know who wrote it, which is kind of ironic, The Cloud of Unknowing. (laughs) We don't know who wrote The Cloud, but the author says this, uh, love can embrace God and thoughts never will. Love can embrace God, thoughts never will. It's that... It's an appreciation for just how different God is from us. And certainly we can know God. I believe we can truly know God. But we don't fully know God. I don't fully know Angela. And I've been married to her 29 years. I don't fully know myself. And I've been with me for 47 years. (laughs) I've been with me as long as I've been. And there's still things I'm learning about myself. So we don't, we don't. Fully know God, but we do truly know God. And part of truly knowing God is embracing this mystery of the Trinity. And so here's some practices. Uh, Very quickly, some core practices for fellowshipping with the Trinity. Uh, One of them is solitude and silence. So I going to talk more about this next week, uh, as well as in the lab section. But even what we did there, just... There's so many scriptures that speak to this. Slow down. Take a deep breath. Don't worry about tomorrow. God's God's got it covered. But just spend some time with God. That's how intimacy happens. And the value of silence is that silence represents that comfort level that we have. You know, when you you get to know someone really well, silence is no longer problematic. When you're first getting to know someone, silence can be awkward. And you're like, well, what about the weather? (laughs) Um, How about them bears? Okay, I'll see you later. (laughs) Right? Because we don't know how to talk to people. We're uncomfortable unless we really know someone. And then when it's time to talk, we can talk nonstop. But if... But there's no stress. There's no pressure to say anything. And it's just kind of the practice of that silence. Another practice, and we do this periodically around here, is called praying the scriptures. It's an ancient practice. And it, um, I'm for devotional reading of scriptures. And I kind of always grow, I grew up thinking, believing, being taught, being told that you ought to read the Bible through at least once a year, every year. And I think reading the Bible through um, in a year and then doing it again and again is a helpful practice. But I wouldn't want it to be your only interaction with the Bible because that's at a pretty quick pace. Like, I want you to read a little slower. I like for you to read and stop and think a bit, and reread and stop and think again, like a slow meditation on the scripture. Like, reading and rereading. Because how many of you, the first time you read through something, you're like, I didn't really get that. Or maybe the second time you read through it, right? And then, yeah, exactly. But the rereading of it slows us down. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, I'm going to call out my friend, John, sitting in the back there. Uh, John's in the practice of copying down Scripture. So in his devotional time, he's not just reading, because when you read, you can read pretty fast. He's copying. And so by copying it down, it slows you down. It makes you be present. It gives you that kind of time. Like the silence and the solitude, this type of praying the Scriptures is all about intimacy. Because... We want to be with the people we love. And if you don't want to be, then maybe you don't love, right? Maybe that's an issue. Maybe that's something to think about or to pray about. Lastly, there's this phenomenon called spiritual friendship or Christian community. Um, again, growing up, we called this accountability partners. And it's, it's not some, somebody had accountability partner. Yeah. It's, it's not that I'm opposed to accountability partners, But the phrase accountability partner was problematic for me because it was so legalistic. It was trying to hold your nose down. It was trying to say, you need to behave like this. And that's not exactly what spiritual friendship or Christian community is about. Spiritual friendship, Christian community, is having other people in your life that also believe in God that you can talk about your life, and particularly your life in God, with them. It, it, it fits us together in a, in a fabric that is, that is so, uh, so healthy. So for, I know I said, I'm talking about this trinity, it's not so useful, there's not something you can, you, know, you can't use it as a lever. And, and that's difficult, right, for us to then, well, what do I do with it? Well, you don't do anything with it. Right? It's about intimacy, it's about relationship. But there is, I believe, a certain change or transformation in our life. So Richard Rohr talks a lot about the Christian life being about transformation, not transaction. Like we've reduced everything into a transaction, and then we think we're done with it. <laughs> like I've said my my I've professed my faith in Jesus, I confessed my sins, I've been baptized, so I'm done with that. Now what do I do? What's well, not a transaction. It's not something that you're done with. It's a transformation that takes place inside of you. And how do you know that the transformation is taking place inside of you? Because the fruit of the Spirit will be evidence in your life. Like anytime you're hanging out with somebody, do you know, have you ever noticed how you start to kind of pick up a bit on their vocabulary? Like you start to say things that they say? Or, or you'll start to hear them saying things you say, right? Like there's a, there's a new phrase, appearance not so new. I, found, I, I learned it yesterday. There's a new word for gossip, tea. I didn't, I didn't know that that meant gossip. It apparently does. How many of you already knew that meant gossip? Okay, so I'm a little, there's a, there was definitely an age line there. <laughs> In the congregation, all right, so I, yeah, I kind of crossed over. yeah, we start to pick up the language, the character, the demeanor, maybe even a little bit of this sense of humor. Our fashion changes a bit oh I like I like the way Mikel wears that. Maybe I should wear that. just speaking very autobiographically there, so how do we know? that we were, we're rightly hanging out with God? How do we know that our silence and our solitude, our Christian practices, our attending a church, our prayer, how do we know, or even our reading of Scripture, how do we know that our interpretation of Scripture is right? I don't think it's just because it's historically, contextually sensitive or it's literarily you know, fine-tuned. I think we know it when the fruit of the Spirit is in our lives. You know the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But I wrote down a few things here that I think are maybe the inverse of some of that. Yet we sometimes try to substitute it for it. Tolerance, my friends, is not a fruit of the Spirit, but love is. If you're just tolerating the other, if you're just putting up with somebody who has a different view than you, then you're not expressing the fruit of the spirit. We can't, We can't. I mean, it's good in a civic way to tolerate the other. But if you want to be Christian, you have to get past your tolerance to the point of loving them. Jesus said, I've, we've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. So I really believe that the fruit of the spirit calls us beyond tolerance into love. Happiness is not a fruit of the spirit, but joy is. You can't always be happy. Happiness comes and goes. But there is a joy of the spirit that can be down in our souls, that can be with us even when times are bad. Conflict avoidance is not a fruit of the spirit, but peace is. This is a hard one for me. I am naturally a conflict avoider. If something's gone wrong between us, just trust me. I'm going to try my best to avoid you. (laughs) Like if something's going wrong between two other people, I try to walk the long way around. But Jesus never said blessed are the conflict avoiders, right? It's blessed are the peacemakers. Ambition is not a fruit of the spirit but patience is. I know that might sound a little anti-American, right? We're all supposed to just work hard and get it done. But maybe God is the main doer in this world. And maybe we're called to be patient. Being nice is not a fruit of the spirit, but kindness is. I can be nice to people, even when in my heart I don't care being kind, kindness is what flows out of us when we spent time with God. Being polite is not a fruit of the Spirit, but goodness is. Loyalty is not a fruit of the Spirit, but faithfulness is. Passivity is not a fruit of the Spirit, but gentleness is. Always needing to win an argument is not a fruit of the spirit, but self-control is. Our friend uh, Chris Green wrote a book, and several, but one that was published uh, just last year about this time, called "Surprised by God." And in it, I'm going to I'm going to read a bit. Um, I, I've edited it down, um, so there's a couple of you know dot dot dots in here, but. It speaks about God and it speaks about the Trinity in a way that helps us move from maybe our mistaken identities to something that's uh, truer, more present. Chris says this We are too easily deceived by our desires. The Gospels. Teach us that many of those who are crowded around Jesus, including some of his closest disciples and his dearest friends, were drawn to him by false hopes and vain expectations. I'll just insert here, you know, he had a a disciple that was a zealot. Well, that guy probably wanted Jesus to kind of, you know, lead the military. He had a disciple who was a tax collector. That guy probably wanted him to, you know, lead the uh, Israeli IRS. The hard truth is that this is back to Chris. The hard truth is that we too often find ourselves attracted to what we wrongly think is God. At times, like Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, we come seeking God for those powers we find useful. Imagining that professing belief in God, we have secured a resource that will afford us the life we want for ourselves. But for most of us, at least most of the time, the deception is more subtle. Our desires are not so much out and out corrupt as they are so ever slightly bent. I'm going to invite you to, to read with me this responsive reading. The bold will all say together, and it kind of starts in bold. Let's read. I'll read the un- unboldened part. Read with me. We delight in the justice of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means grief for our enemies. We delight in the mercy of God, but at least in part because we imagine it frees us from responsibility to work for justice in our world. Reading just the bold together. We delight in the power of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we are protected from sufferings others have to face. We delight in the truth of God, but at least in part because we take pride in being right and we want to be known as knowledgeable and wise. We delight in the law of God but at least in part because we imagine it provides a moral framework that allows us to sort uh, nearly right from wrong, order from disorder, the good folks from the bad folks. We delight in the calling of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we can find success in ministry and make a name for ourselves. We delight in the presence and work of God in our lives but at least in part because we know how that experience leaves us feeling and we want to advance quickly into the depths and heights of our faith. We are always, until the end, living at risk of these deceptions and countless others like them. But we do not need to panic or to despair. If we desire what is good in ways that are not good, we can rest assured that God will gracefully disappoint us. Altogether, if what we find delightful in God is in fact an illusion, God has promised to go on revealing His true beauty until we find that beauty truly desirable. Amen. is gonna come now and lead us in communion.
1: Uh, in a moment, um, servers are going to come and bring you the elements of communion. <clears throat> I'd ask you to just hold on to them and we'll take them together at the end. I was really blessed uh, last week by the, thank you, by the um, kind of multi language service that we had uh, reflecting um, Pentecost. And I love, I don't speak Portuguese, uh, I barely speak English. Uh, <laughs> But I, it sounds so beautiful to me, and I, I love hearing other languages spoken. Not just because they're kind of, um, you know, pleasant to the ear to hear, but because there's so much value. Other languages have words that we don't have in English, and uh, I, I love uh, people who know me well know I'm kind of a collector of words. Uh, so, uh, for instance, the dad joke video today, uh, we don't have a word. You know, we. I think cringy might be kind of the most like kind of appropriate English word that we have, if that's a real word, but uh, the Germans have a word for the kind of the experience of hearing a really particularly heinous dad joke, and it's called friend shaman. and uh, that word means vicarious embarrassment. It's where someone does something or says something embarrassing, and even though we're not the one doing or saying the thing, we feel the embarrassment on kind of on the on their behalf, you know, kind of vicariously. That's called frem shaman. We don't have that word in English, but it's a good word. Next week, I'll give you a word that we can use for the potluck. Um, it's a, a mejamo. It's a Georgian word that means I accidentally ate the whole thing. <laughs> it's the phenomenon where you're eating something that's so delicious, you can't stop eating it until it's all gone. So feel free to use that one next week. I want to share one more word with you. This is one that I actually grew up with. Uh, in in my, um, my my dad is from Spain, and I have a, a large family from the country of Spain. And this word in Spanish is sobre mesa, and this word means uh, well, it doesn't really have a kind of direct translation into English, but it's the period of time after a meal is over where you sit around the table, and typically, kind of. Um, I mean, I guess transliterated "sobremesa" means "over the table," but uh, it, it really has nothing to do with the meal itself. It's a phenomenon where, after you're done eating, uh, there's conversation, jokes are told, stories are told, songs are sung. You might hear a dad joke or two if you're lucky at the sobremesa after the meal. I, I, what I I'm gonna ultimately fail to convey to you, convey to you though, is um, the feeling of what sobremesa is. This is something that, um, uh, after a particularly good meal, you're with your friends and you're with your family, and there's kind of a—it's kind of like a deep, kind of primal magic to sobremesa. You feel together, more so than just being in the same place. You feel kind of connected to one another. I don't think it's a mistake that God chooses to reveal God's self through the nature of relationship. That we know God in the doctrine of the Trinity through God's kind of co-mutual relationship with God's self. Likewise, when Jesus prayed for us, he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. This isn't something that's kind of external that we can use, like Robbie said. It has no utility. It doesn't really do anything for us other than the fact that we can participate in it. That our unity, our gathering around the table is and can be and should be and must be an image of God's unity, of our connection to God. And so we, we kind of pray this this we recite this scripture when we take communion together it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we don't recite the whole thing but the 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 Paul in when he's doing this he's kind of um, admonishing the church in Corinth for being divided as they take the Lord's supper he calls it taking it in an unworthy manner that they didn't care for one another that there was no that they there were schisms there were divisions among them and so today i want you to ponder like sobremesa, it's not so much important what you eat, what you're eating. I mean, we kind of focus on these elements most of the time and kind of what they symbolize, and that's important. But today I want you to kind of more look around and see who you're taking with. As I look back on the meals that I had with my family, I can tell you I can't always tell you what we ate. I can't always tell you where we were. But I can tell you distinctly kind of how it felt. I can tell you exactly who was there. I can tell you exactly who wasn't there and should have been. And so I want to today take this meal in a worthy manner where we are not divided, that we're partaking in the same kind of community, communion that God experiences. If you have a need, I want to know about it. If you don't have a need, you should help someone who does. If you know of someone who should be here and isn't, reach out to them. Father, we're grateful for your revelation. We're grateful that you have given us the image of yourself as the Trinity, Lord. And God, we pray earnestly today, that our connection to one another, that our unity, that our love, that our kindness, that our generosity, that our faithfulness to one another would truly be an image of our connection to you, Lord, our love for you and your love for us. We love you, God. We are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.